Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Swanson. Today's episode features educational content from our conference coverage program titled PROI 2022, Clinical Impact of New HIV Data. In addition to this podcast, we encourage you to check out the full program on our website, where you can watch on-demand webcasts of our rapid post-conference webinars, read clinical thought commentaries from physicians around the globe, and download curated slide sets showcasing key studies from CROI 2022. Remember, you can find that link to the full program in the show notes for this episode. The podcast you are about to hear features two advanced practice providers who specialize in HIV, discussing key studies presented at the conference. I'm delighted to introduce them both, starting with Jeffrey Kwong. He's a professor in the Rutgers School of Nursing in Newark, New Jersey, and a nurse practitioner at Gotham Medical Group in New York, New York. Joining him in conversation is Susan LaLachur, who is Professor in Physician Assistant Studies at the George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C. So let's get started and hear what Drs. Kwong and LaLachur have to say about new HIV data from CROI 2022. Hi, I'm Susan Lalashore. I'm a PA at the George Washington University. My colleague is Jeff Kwong. Hello, everybody. I'm Jeff Kwong. I'm a nurse practitioner from Rutgers University in New Jersey. Today, we'll be sharing our thoughts on some of the newest data that was presented recently at the CROI 22 conference. So, Susan, there are a couple of trials that we wanted to cover today. And the first one that we wanted to talk about was the IMPACT 2010 trial and some of the data that was presented out of there, specifically the Stranix Jibata study. So um, just for folks who may not be familiar, the IMPACT 2010 trial was an open label trial looking at antiretroviral naive women who were pregnant either between 14 and 28 weeks. And this was a large international trial. They had over 22 sites in nine different countries. And within this trial, Individuals were randomized to receive one of three different treatment arms. Two of them contained dolutegravir, and it was either paired with emtricitabine and tenofovir alafenamide, or emtricitabine and tenofovir just a proxyl fumarate. And the third arm were individuals who received efavirenz with emtricitabine and tenofovir just a proxyl fumarate. Specifically, the uh, Stranix Jibanda trial reported on the birth outcomes uh, from this trial. Within the infant cohort, there are about 617 infants born, and they looked at different types of outcomes over the, the course of the year following birth. And they found that most infants that were exposed to efavirenz, in terms of size, were significantly smaller compared to those who were exposed to dolutegravir, about 20% in the efavirenz arm versus 15% in the dolutegravir arm. And then over time, they also noticed that there were increased rates of stunting or higher rates of stunting, 21% in the efavirenz arm versus 13 or 14% in the dolutegravir arms. And we know that the current perinatal guidelines do recommend integrase inhibitors, and they list dolutegravir as a preferred option for people who are pregnant or trying to conceive. And they put efavirenz as an alternative, and people may still continue to use it if they're on it. I was just wondering, Susan, based on this newer data that was presented, what are your thoughts on this? And does this change in any way how you counsel patients who may be considering pregnancy? Thank you, Jeff. I think 
it probably just supports what we're pretty much already doing, but it carries it on to the infants. So what we saw previously with this study was in the different arms, Dolutegravir versus Efavirenz, there was appropriate weight gain in the moms during pregnancy in the two Dolutegravir arms, whereas in the Efavirenz arm, the weight gain was not as good for the moms. And that seems to correlate with the birth weights and the one-year weights of the infants of women in each of those arms. It's notable that these are all women who started their antiretroviral therapy in pregnancy. And so we're not sure whether it coordinates totally with women who start before they become pregnant, but it gives us a really pretty clear signal that dolutegravir is going to be the better choice for our moms. And it also follows on with another study that was presented by Isabella Young. This is a study looking at PrEP and combining it with hormonal therapy to prevent pregnancy and HIV at the same time. So this study is a preclinical trial. This was not done in humans. It was done in mice. And it was a test of concept to see if there could be a depot form of something that contained both an integrase inhibitor, namely cabotegravir or dolutegravir, along with a hormonal pregnancy prevention drug. So tonogestrol or medroproxyprogesterone, Nexplan or, or Provera essentially as we know them, with either the, the long-acting form of dolutegravir or cabotegravir. Now, all these drugs are already approved you know, for use in this format, except for the dolutegravir. But what we're looking at here is a, is a new formulation. And they were checking both the drug characteristics, but also the inflammatory characteristics of the depot. And they did that looking at both TNF-alpha and IL-6 in the blood, but also at direct tissue examination. What they found was that all of these drugs were very, very stable, either zero or first-order kinetics, so that they stayed in the body at appropriately measurable amounts. This was done, of course, in mice, and there's a long way from mice to humans, but they've already started some studies in non-human primates on this. And then human studies, I imagine, will be starting up in the next two to three years. So I'm really looking forward to this. Now, as with all the injectable drugs that we're looking at these days, we're going to have some distribution problems. Right now, injectable cabotegravir is pretty expensive. And the administration is another thing we need to think about. So we need to be thinking about sort of the public health aspect of some of these things as well as we move forward. But it would be really, really helpful for women to have access to something they could control that prevents both HIV and pregnancy in a predictable way. What are your thoughts on this, Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a very exciting glimpse into the future. But also, I mean, I love the fact that this option combines two, um, two different things that are important for some individuals, right? Prevention of unintended pregnancy, as well as HIV. And I think one of the challenges will be, as we have seen with um, some of our other long-term products, include just in feasibility and operationalizing this 
into clinic schedule and into an individual's, you know, daily life. Like how are they going to plan around um, coming back to clinic, et cetera, et cetera. That's a little bit down the line, but nonetheless, something to think about. But I think it's very exciting in terms of new options that we have available. So kind of moving along the, um, the pathway of prevention and talking about long-acting options, you mentioned the availability of cabotegravir, and I mean, we've had a lot of exciting news from HPTN 083 and 084 trials, which were the trials looking at the efficacy of cabotegravir as an intervention option for PrEP. And there was more data that was presented at this CROI. Uh, one in particular was from Eshelman, which looked at early detection of HIV infection in individuals who received cabotegravir. And they really focused here looking at the individuals who acquired HIV during the trial. And they found that in terms of testing and detection of infection, that individuals who had undetected or undiagnosed infections had a greater likelihood of developing um, integrase-related resistance mutations. So I think one of the challenges is that with the use of routine just antigen-antibody testing that is used for monitoring, early infection was missed because the PrEP medication that was used was a suppressing of viral replication. However, um, people were still infected. And so sort of the take-home message from this presentation was the importance of incorporating viral load testing um, and making that a part of monitoring for people who are on cabotegravir for HIV prevention um, to see if this would help reduce the likelihood of developing integrase resistance mutations. This is now part of the current guidelines that were just released in 2021 for PrEP. But Susan, what are your thoughts on the data from this trial, how this incorporates with the new guidelines? Um, well, this is so interesting. So one thing to keep in mind is this is seven cases and there might be a couple more. Well, there are a couple more now but they generally occurred long after stopping the PrEP. And so it's, it's very interesting that the recommendation has been to test everybody with a viral load test. I think it's going to be possible in this country, and the guidelines even state that it, you can still use the drug even if viral load testing is not available because of its much better efficacy. And so it's important to remember that even if you don't have access to viral load testing, it doesn't take the cabotegravir off the options list. It's going to be a great added expense. So that's something we're going to need to be thinking about. But obviously, cost-benefit ratio, not having instes in our armamentarium for somebody who does convert is going to be problematic. So yes, avoiding that resistance is going to be critical. And the integrase inhibitors are so many fewer drug-drug interactions. So the cost down the road using integrase inhibitors will possibly make up for that. It's going to be a cost-benefit analysis thing, though, for many nations. Yes, I, you know, I definitely agree. And I think, I know there's been some talk among the community about you know, now we're having to add this extra test 
and it's you know it potentially poses a barrier to a taxes for some people but you know i think it's an important concept still to to make sure that we are detecting infections as soon as possible but i do like the caveat that are incorporated into the current guidelines of you know even if viral load testing is not available um, cap should still be considered i think it's a great option yeah, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, we forget that the integrase inhibitors are still very new and there's a lot we don't know about them. And some mm -hmm. of this came up for me in the Silverberg study, um, looking at two cohorts, one at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California and the other at, at what used to be the Partners Health System. I think it's the Mass General Brigham um, Women's cohort now. And what they did was they matched group of people with HIV, about 10,000 of those, with over 20,000 people without HIV. They matched them for age, gender, race, smoking, and other MI risk factors. And what they were looking for was specifically the risk of myocardial infarction. And they followed this group for two periods of time, 2005 to 2009, and then from 2010 to 2017. They monitored the and compared between the two groups. They compared using a Cox proportional hazard model. They strat stratified for appropriate factors. And what they found was during the first set time period, 2005 to 2009, there was essentially no difference between the people who had HIV and those who did not have HIV in terms of MI risk. But in the second time period, 2010 to 17, what they found was much increased, 60% greater risk of MI in the people with HIV. And this was caused not by an increase in that group so much as a decrease in the HIV negative group. So they went from a 1.1, 1.2 risk decrease down to 0. 0.9 per 100 person years. They weren't able to, you know, clearly distinguish what the cause of this was, but they looked at a bunch of different factors that changed over time. And the one thing that was noticeable was uh, hypertension drug use in the HIV negative group decreased. So one presumes because their hypertensions decreased. So that was one key finding. Unclear if it's related to the later, you know, again, the integrase inhibitors, we didn't start using them until that latter period. And almost all of our patients, at least all of mine, have been switched over to an integrase inhibitor. We do know that the integrase inhibitors cause some weight gain, but there wasn't a clear association there. But there's also um, an associated lipid level with TAF as opposed to TDF. So we're not really clear on what this means, um, but it's a fairly significant thing. And what it really means for me clinically anyway, is to be more thoughtful about managing my patients' other cardiac risks, biggest one being smoking. Jeff, do you have additional thoughts on that? As you said, I think what we can do to counsel and educate our patients is really focusing on some of the other modifiable risk factors that we can address, such as diet, nutrition, activity, smoking, managing their hypertension, controlling all the other risk factors, 
you know, making sure that people receive statins. I know there's data and information that shows that there's been inequities in terms of persons with HIV receiving appropriate levels of statins. So, you know, I think this really just speaks to kind of the risks and benefits that we have to live with when we're talking about antiretroviral therapy. I think there are different um, factors that come into play here that are not fully elucidated, but in terms of the things that we need to consider, you know, as our population is aging and we know that we are dealing with more and more chronic conditions such as atherosclerotic heart disease, hypertension, renal disease, um, functional changes, we can really help improve the quality of the, our patients as they age and reduce the risk factors by focusing on the things that we can address. So, Yeah, I would completely agree. There, there was a fair amount at the conference, some of the inflammatory markers that we've seen in HIV as well. So as you say, diet and exercise can make a huge difference in all of those sort of immeasurable items that our patients face. All right. Well, thank you so much, Susan. Uh, that was a great wrap up of some of the highlights from CROI 2022. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And um, hopefully some of our audience will uh, take away some interesting points that they can apply to practice. Yes, I think this is all we have time for right now. But I look forward to, to seeing more on the studies that were presented. There was so much. Thank you so very much to our expert faculty, Drs. Kwong and Lala Shur, for that informative post-conference conversation. And thanks to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full program of conference coverage of CROI 2022, click on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. 